welcome to The Divorce Podcast, a podcast that aims to address divorce, separation and co-parenting here in the UK, countering the often sensationalist way it's portrayed in the media, challenging the status quo and driving for reform. On each episode, I'm joined by experts to discuss divorce, separation and co-parenting from different angles and to give their opinions and to debate them. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor and divorce coach, co-founder of Amicable and host of the Divorce Podcast. In this episode, we're discussing mental health in the workplace and how to support colleagues who are navigating divorce and separation. In this episode, I'm joined by Petra Velzebor. Petra's expertise and passion in mental health in the workplace stems from her own personal experience battling mental health and struggling with cultural and circumstantial challenges. After being raised in a religious cult without any access to formal education, her story and climb from rock bottom have inspired thousands to better understand how to improve mental health for themselves and for others. We're also joined today by Gareth Jones. Gareth is an HR consultant and a passionate HR practitioner with multi-sector experience, including technology, media design, and luxury consumer, with over 14 years' experience working with some of the market's leading startups and growth businesses. Welcome, Petra, and welcome, Gareth. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. Petra, ladies first, let's start with you. I'd love to hear more about how you first started working with companies and organizations. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, it's it's probably a long tale that didn't have a perfect plan, but started uh, way back when I was training to be be a counselor and then a psychotherapist and working with young people in, in mental health uh, charities for young people, teenagers, young offenders. And then I, I sort of pivoted from that into becoming clinical director for an, an employee assistance program. So those that kind of benefit service for businesses where people call a counselor to get some support. And I sort of found the the underside of the EAP service just didn't quite sit right with me. But it was a, an opportunity for me to, to test a whole bunch of services such as training and to work in a variety of industries. And I, I moved then, uh, interestingly, once I got divorced, I, I got that job, but then I also resigned from it because I suddenly felt quite open to live uh, a fully purpose uh, sort of driven life. Uh, and that led me to to building Petrobelsbore Limited, so our mental health business, which is uh, kind of growing rapidly at the moment, given the the world and the challenges that people are facing. So we help companies with creating strategies, well-being strategies, but also training, development, getting leaders to really normalize the conversation around good mental health and opening the the space really for people to fully be themselves at work. Right. So, I mean, you said that the EAP business just didn't sit right with you. So what do you think businesses and organizations do wrong? Well, I mean, that's a that's a huge question. If people look at their their reports really from EAP services, they're usually about, you know, six to eight percent usage. And often when you talk to people on the front line of the business, they might not know what an EAP means or uh, they might still worry about anonymity or there might be, you know, certain steps that they have to jump through in order to even access the service, which can sort of put different people off the service. But I guess lots of things are, are, are changing as well. So, so many people are becoming more open to the conversation about mental health. But, but the downside, so, so what's wrong, I guess, is there's lots of reports and evidence now around 
when you don't put uh, support in place from a prevention angle, so how are you thinking about the culture and, the, and those kind of 10 steps before the absence, the burnout, the mental health issue, well, then you're going to keep coming at it from a reactive kind of fix the problem, at, you know, once it's occurred place rather than kind of coming at it from more of that prevention space. So long-term absence, you know, staff retention, so losing talent, uh, a whole host of things that become your marker points for why prevention and having a good strategy in place is, is useful. Right. And so let me ask Gareth then. So Gareth, you're almost the other side of Petra's coin in some way, aren't you? Petra's come at it from quite a personal experience of counselling and her own sort of personal journey. You've got a more organisational based experience. So Petra talked there a little bit about, you know, putting strategies in place before things have fallen off a cliff. What's your experience of how companies have dealt with or approached mental health? I think we're actually potentially in a really dangerous position currently that a lot of people are talking, a lot of businesses are talking about mental health, and it's actually trying to move the agenda along to the next stage. And this is becoming quite evident for a lot of the some employers that I'm working with. There's definitely a conversation happening, but then when it comes to really making influential change to their employees to enable their welfare and well-being to be you know, put at the forefront as opposed to business performance is really having to change that dial on that conversation. Although we're talking about it, actually really needs to be able to move on to that next stage. And then the, you know, some of the organisations that I do work with, you, you mentioned at the start, I do tend to work with a lot, a lot more startup organisations and growth businesses. So they do tend to have a lot more agility to be able to, to change and make change within the workplace. Personally, I think from an EAP perspective, uh, yeah, I, I agree with Petro as well. Yeah, there's that only really scratches the surface. I think you said something six to eight percent of sort of uptake on them. But at the same time, yeah, if that six to eight percent is really making a difference to some people, then then fantastic. But actually, it's it's a communication element across the business to to really build that awareness. Yeah. Let me just bring it around to the sort of specifics of divorce. So one of the most stressful things that we all know that can happen is the breakdown of a relationship or a divorce. Gareth, what's happening in terms of how workplaces are supporting people with a specific issue of relationship breakdown? Again, this has been something which has really escalated uh, over the last sort of 18 to 12 months within the workplace. And I think there's a real change from the old personnel to HR to people and actually what what the the purpose of the people's department is within an organization what they can really aid the the business with and I've seen a lot of businesses moving away from you know a very traditional sort of methodology over you know your quarterly and annual appraisal themes objectives building we're in a world now where personal lives, as we were just saying, and work lives are now becoming one and actually trying to find the differential between the two and really a, a clean break point. Moving away from a traditional people model and those objectives that are set in place and the, the pressures that come with those in your lifespan and over a course of a year, you know, we talk divorce, that 
that is one of the most single-handedly most stressful situations that an individual can be in, whether it be financial, whether it be legal, whether it be childcare, mental health, loss of identity, confidence, all of those things are obviously going to have an impact on your day-to-day work and your working environment. And actually, that should be your primary sub, your primary focus is to resolve those issues. The old mentality of, you know, you work, you leave your personal problems at the door. Luckily, a lot of businesses have managed to remove those sort of cultures. But where businesses are now moving, I'm having a conversation with one business at the moment. Uh, we're talking about sort of a separation leave policy within the business to really allow people that time, as you would with bereavement, as you would with vacation, allowing that opportunity to, to have that. Justin, you've had, I suppose, a personal experience as well, and I, I hope you don't mind talking about it, but when you divorced, what was the reaction at work and what support did you receive? Well, probably like many people, I kept a lot of it to myself, which is hilarious given I've now developed into a, a mental health consultant supporting businesses to create that open space, but probably because I didn't sort of look for it in that way. It, it often comes out in, in other ways, uh, although in, in our, our management training sessions and support groups these days, more and more are telling me that divorce or relationship challenges or domestic abuse, like the, that sort of level is coming to them it is sort of at the forefront of some of their conversations in, in a bigger way. And I think for me, it was, and probably for many people, it was, uh, as um, Gareth was saying, it's, it's almost much bigger than the actual divorce issue. I mean, it was years in the making for me. And really, it was that final year. But then when I finally had that conversation with, with my ex-husband, I couldn't move out of the home for another six months. We have two kids. Uh, we wanted to do right by them. So did he, which, which I respect him for. But there were six months of us living under the same roof, having made that decision, m- me making it, but, but, and, and, and my ex-husband feeling very hurt and powerless about the decision. So you can imagine the, the, the friction and the challenge and, and the guilt and the, the arguments and the difficulty, which we were both trying to hide for, from our children. And in a way that becomes, you, you just try and hide it from people because you just want to get through. And of course, finding the key friendships or, or the, the key individual within your workplace, which might not be your manager, it wasn't for me, to get that support because you, you just need it to, to get through. As Gareth said, it's one of the most difficult times of our lives. And Gareth alluded there to the fact that things are changing, albeit slowly, and that he he mentioned things like having separation leave. What sort of strategies do you now talk to people about that you think perhaps would have helped you in that time? Sure. Well, again, it's that prevention culture piece. Like if you are have an open culture where it isn't just, uh, you know, separation from, from work and personal, but you get to know your people uh, in peacetime, as we call it. So if you're getting to know your people in general, well, then you're building that psychological safety and that feeling of trust so that when things become difficult, be it divorce or, or a whole host of other things, well, hey, that's the person that you already have that foundation of trust to, to begin speaking with. And even simple things like we'll, we'll talk about team meetings and where do we create that psychological safety? Well, you know, uh, do a round of what's one thing you're grateful for? What's a challenge you're experiencing? What's one thing you're proud of? Just little things like that that throw in the, the kind of uh, idea, the permission that we can talk about. This can be in an emotionally supportive space as well as a task focused one. So there's lots of little ways. And of course, uh, as Gareth said earlier, 
uh, an employee assistance program where you, you may have legal advice, you may have access to a whole host of benefits, utilize that space as much as you can if you want that objective, maybe outsider to talk through some of the challenges. And so Gareth, what are your top tips for supporting colleagues through a divorce or separation in the workplace? What have you learned in all of this work? Being able to have an open conversation with someone within an organisation. And yeah, it doesn't always have to be that that people department or a line manager. Again, we I've worked with a number of businesses before where we've implemented sort of mental health first aid or ambassadors across the business that are trained. They're not counsellors, but they are someone as as kind of a go-to to to really start signposting certain areas. And as a lot of mental health issues tend to be, yeah, it is about understanding and recognising the signs from a really early stage and being able to flag those in the correct way and then signpost. I think we as human beings, naturally, we, we want to help and we want to do things in the right manner, in the right way. Um, but we don't always have the answers. But fortunately, the, these days, I think, you know, because the dialogue is becoming more of a uh, a conversation point that you know, things are starting to get a little easier but sometimes you need to be the person to, to take that first step to have a conversation or at least get that dialogue moving. Well it's interesting because you've both said it's important to talk to somebody but it doesn't have to be your line manager and I guess organisations now potentially are flatter structured and there are all sorts of different structures and we're all working remotely and who do you go to and, and how do we train more people within a business to go to and are we training them or are we just looking for people who are naturally that way inclined? Petra, when you go into organisations, how do you set up the idea? It's it's great to be able to talk about it, but how do you make that a reality by having the people in place who are able to hear and listen to what's been bought? Sure. Well, the training that we do, uh, you know, we, people don't need to have the answers. In fact, when I was going through through my stuff, if somebody was giving me advice based on their experience of divorce, even or their experience of mental health struggles or parenting, I probably wasn't quite ready to hear it because I needed to go at my own pace, which was difficult. I needed to, for once in my life, be coming at this from my decision point because I'd been influenced by, as you said, my cult upbringing and then being in a Catholic Italian marriage, and then kind of going, I need to find my own voice. So I didn't need anyone to go, hey, have you thought about this, that and the other, other than perhaps here's a number that you know, you can get some advice and support. But the training that we do is, 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 is for everyone. It doesn't have to be particular people. It really is about active listening. So just creating space for that person to talk through things and then empowering them. So going, hey, you know, is there something I can do to help? You know, just feeling being vulnerable and open to not having all the answers and going, hey, you know, do you, do you know about the, these numbers or is there any small thing like maybe they've got a, a kid and you, you know that there's someone who could babysit or support or you've got a friend who's got legal advice. But we don't need to have all the answers in order to create an empathetic space that supports connection, because just that talking about it and having someone uh, kind of be a witness to it can be that relief that is just the thing that we need. and. It also can be a manager. So in our Mental Health for Leaders courses, we are training up managers to, and getting rid of the fear that if you ask a question about a relationship or something personal, that it's going to be this Pandora's box and the person's going to fall apart. And it's like, well, just, just ask questions, be explicit, create space, and it's up to the person how they use it. Yeah, 
And Gareth, how do you create that kind of culture then? What are the steps you need to put in place as a business to try and create that culture where it's okay to talk about the personal stuff? Yeah, I I think it it has to be genuine because in these days it's very easy to see through a plaster philosophy I suppose that people are just putting a band-aid over things where actually something that's implemented with deep-rooted meaning it really has to be genuine and the people that are involved in programs such as this really do have to want to be involved in it. Yeah, the other side is that, uh, and I completely agree with Patrick here, every situation is totally individual to the next person's and the next person's and what works for one doesn't work for another. And I think it's really key that the businesses take that mentality when building any form of wellbeing platform because you can't train people in one very specific manner to come out with a certain outcome because especially with the vast topic of divorce, there are so many different factors at play that are going to affect different people in really different ways. So if a business is putting in a, a well-being philosophy across the business, make sure it's genuine, make sure it's about you, it's at the core of your business, and it's not just there for lip, lip service. It's there as a genuine product and a platform to really aid the well-being and welfare of all of your people. And what do you say, Petra, to the sceptics? So the companies who say, well, it's not our role to provide endless counselling and support and when's the work getting done? So the cynics, the people who feel that there isn't a connection between this kind of stuff and improved well-being and productivity, how do you convert those people or do you not bother with those people? Different people are, are willing to listen at different times. Different businesses are at different stages of, of sort of accountability or seeing the importance. But you just have to look at the World Health Organization statistics. Depression is now the leading cause of disability worldwide. Look at the suicide statistics, especially for young men. Look at the absence statistics in the UK as far as people on long-term sick. You know, those numbers, if you put those together, the, the Thriving at Work report that came out in 2017, said that it costs the UK businesses, I believe it's 32 to 33 billion annually in, in sort of crisis costs, which could be prevented. So that there's numbers that are attached to this now. So I love getting, you know, a, a boardroom going right to the top and going, hey, here are the numbers. This is the business case. But then as Gareth said, where it has the most benefit is when, you know, these programs and things are put in place from a genuine care for their people. And understanding that that productivity, I mean, there's just so much science behind this now about, you know, the sleep that we need and a whole host of other things we need in order to, to, to be productive. Uh, you take that 30 minute lunch break and the, the, the report that you've been kind of tackling for hours and starting to go a bit cross-eyed, you then come and, you know, bash it out in, in 30 minutes because you've had that little active recovery. So, so there's the physical science, the mental science, and now the report's just around the money that's being spent when we don't invest in our people. And it feels like, you know, I suppose it feels like a no-brainer for, for so many companies. That just feels like a big disparity between, you know, those that get it and those that don't now. And I, I see more people in the job market wanting to vote with their feet about this kind of stuff. And it's no longer just the case that salary drives people's careers it's all of this other stuff that has such a big impact I think it becomes a real kind of divider of 
companies you want to work for and companies you don't. I don't know if there are any stats or, or whether you echo any of those views, Gareth. I was reading something the other day and I think for the first time, you're saying that salary isn't the top of the list for what people are really looking for from an employer. And actually, two in five people, flexible working is now the most key element to joining an organisation. And actually, the, the other side, I think this was a study a while back by Mary Magnuson, actually, where 56% of employees say that employers could do more to assist them with mental health. That's 56% people. So you know, that's a huge amount of people in the workforce that don't feel supported. And yeah, I think there, there's, there's a huge amount of change happening. I think it's been sped up a hell of a lot through COVID-19, but it's sped up for the good, personally. Yes, it's, you know, we're in a difficult situation and we're all sat in our closets doing work every day at the moment, or if you're lucky to have an office. But at the same time, I think, you know, when that world does return to the new norm, as they say, I think the, the work land, the employment landscape will be extraordinarily different. And businesses are going to have to react to that very, very quickly because it's not just going to return to an every nine to five back into work Monday to Friday. Yeah, absolutely. And Petra, one final word from you, because I'm really conscious of our time here. But a final word on, you know, if if, if someone's coming to you as a, an organisation and they're at the very beginning of this, what's the biggest single thing, game changing strategy they could do? Bring any kind of well-being strategy to life by utilizing the passionate people that are in your business. One in four people are experiencing a mental health issue. So kind of galvanize the people who are passionate about it. Offer them a a bit of training, but also empower them to um, create internal campaigns and initiatives. It does. Yes, you. it's great to have some investment, but also the people who want to create the change are in your business already. So all you need to do is give them permission and give them some, some forums to be able to create change. And secondly, I know you said finally, but secondly, all leaders, but all people in a business should be leading by example on this conversation. It is about that genuine authenticity. So if you're a leader saying, go look after yourself and do these things, but you're doing emails at 10 o'clock at night, never take a break, look haggard and stressed. Well, what do you think people are going to think? They're going to think that's the culture that I have to live up to. So lead by example, each individual creates cultural change. Brilliant. Well, listen, both of you, thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Just I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of that topic. I'm definitely going to invite you both back to have another go at this because it just feels there's such a big difference organisations can make if they think about the mental health of their colleagues. Where can people find out a little bit more about you both? Petra, where where are you? Sure, just uh, head to our website. It's just my name, petravelzebor.com or find me on LinkedIn. Loads of freebies there uh, on the topic. Brilliant. Thank you. And Gareth? You can find me at amberpeople.co.uk and also um, you can hit me up, uh, Gareth Jones, on LinkedIn. Perfect. And of course, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kate underscore daily. And you can also listen to more of our podcasts and subscribe by visiting thedivorcepodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much to Petra and to Gareth.